Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. I'm your host, Casey McIntosh, joined by Julie Henningsen. How are you doing today, Julie? Great, Casey. I'm excited to be here. I've got a good story to share with you. I cannot wait to hear it. So, Casey, you you may not recognize the survivor's name, but my guess is that once I start telling the story here, you'll recognize the story. It's a good one. Ooh. My hint is that we're turning the clock back 200 years. This story took place almost exactly 200 years ago, 201 half years ago. It's a long time ago. Can you imagine the world back then? Like, I cannot. There was not a lot of documentation as to the validity of the events I'm about to tell you. So my disclaimer is that everything I say may or may not be true. I do know some aspects of this story are for sure true, but there may be some embellishments. There's definitely some legacy, some lore surrounding this tale um, that would be hard to prove one way or the other. So we're going to tell the story of Hugh Glass. Hugh Glass was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1783. He was born to Irish parents who had immigrated from Northern Ireland, and he's famous for events that took place in 1823. So not a lot is known about his life before 1823, his younger years, but there are some things out there that are unverified and may or may not be true. For example, he may have had a wife and two sons that he abandoned at one point in his early life. It's reported that he was a sea captain for a period of time and was captured by pirates and was given the choice to either walk the plank or join the pirate crew. As you, as you would do, he joined the pirates. Oh, um, sure. He, of course he did. Why would you not? I mean, <laughs> yeah, he was just choosing life. Yeah. Uh, so, so he was a pirate for about two years and he escaped his life of indentured piratude by jumping off the ship a couple miles offshore of Galveston, Texas and swimming to shore. How many people could swim back at that point in history? I mean, maybe more than you would think. Yeah, and then maybe if you were a sea captain, you, you've got that skill, you know, dialed better than some others. It was later rumored after his pirate days that he was captured by the Pawnee Native American tribe with a friend that he had been traveling across land with. The friend was apparently burnt alive and uh, glass was next to be burnt, but he presented a small token, a gift to the Pawnee chief, which was a vial of a red mineral that could be used as war paint. So his life was spared. That's all it took, huh? That's all it took. And not only was his life spared, but he lived with the Pawnee for several years, apparently. May, may or may not even have had a Pawnee wife. <laughs> and maybe some Pawnee children. You never know. Could be. It's possible. But what is thought to be true is that during this chapter with the Pawnee, he acquired a rifle, a beloved rifle that stuck with him for the next few years. And you would think by the end of this story that the love of his life may have been this rifle and not his Pawnee wife. So with his rifle- Or the first wife that he may or may not have abandoned. <laughs> yeah, the one he abandoned way back in Scranton. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> He's like, I'm getting the hell out of here. Bye. Yeah going to become a pirate. So <laughs> he traveled to St. Louis, Missouri in 1821. I'm building up to the, the meat of our story here. He was accompanied by several Pawnee delegates 
the community he was now a part of, who were invited to meet with some U.S. authorities. And at that time, St. Louis, Missouri was kind of the westernmost post of civilization in America. So after spending some time in St. Louis, he responded to an ad by General William Henry Ashley of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, who was recruiting a corps of 100 men with the goal of ascending the Missouri River as part of a fur trading venture. And they were being offered $200 a year in pay to go beaver trapping, get some beaver furs. Was this a lot of money at the time? I don't know. It doesn't sound like a lot even then. What year is this again? 1822. I did read that they were in this core of 100 men from like bars and homeless people. And it didn't sound like a really reliable crew of workers. They had low standards. They had some low standards as to who was allowed to join this fur trading venture. But nonetheless, $200 a year was enough for Hugh Glass. He signed up along with Jim Bridger. So that Mm. might be a clue as to where we're going with this. There were actually many other kind of legacied mountain men as a part of this party, Jedediah Smith, Jim Bridger, and others. And actually, Hugh Glass didn't join the original group, which were known as Ashley's 100 in 1822, he joined them about a year later in 1823 and met up with them for a little further up the Missouri River. So shortly after he joined this this team, he was shot in the leg by some he was shot in the leg by some Arakara warriors. The Arakara is a Native American tribe also known as the Sanish or Re. It's in North Dakota and part of what today is known as the Mandan Hidatsa Arakara Nations. They had done some trading with the tribe and felt like they were on good terms. And one of the men, however, one of the hundred men got his throat slit after he visited the Arakara village for an unsanctioned interlude with one of the village maidens. They were no longer on good terms and kind of a little war broke out. So Glass was shot in the leg, but he survived. One of his fellow fur trappers, however, was killed. Um, A trapper by the name of John S. Gardner. And Hugh Glass wrote a letter to Gardner's father about the death of his son. So this letter is one of the only written records that is still available from from Hugh Glass's lifetime. He wrote, Dear Sir, my painful duty is to tell you of the death of your son, who befell at the hands of the Indians, 2nd June in the early morning. He died a little while after he was shot and asked me to inform you of his sad fate. We brought him to the ship when he soon died. Mr. Smith, a young man of our company, made a powerful prayer who moved us all greatly, and I am persuaded John died in peace. His body we buried with others near this camp and marked the grave with a log. His things we will send to you. The savages are greatly treacherous. We traded with them as friends, but after a great storm of rain and thunder, they came at us before light and many were hurt. I myself was shot in the leg. Master Ashley is bound to stay in these parts till the traitors are rightfully punished. Your faithful servant, Hugh Glass. So yeah, he was literate, which... (laughs) <laughs> and they've been impressive for that time, you know, like 
you kind of wonder what standardized education looked like at that point. Yeah. I wouldn't want my uh, middle school English teacher to read the grammar in this letter, but yeah, he got the <laughs> point across. <laughs> yeah. And it was a little bit poetic and I liked how he put that little bit about the fact that the son died peacefully. Yeah. Yeah. The son died peacefully. They're going to seek some tribution. You know, it's got all the elements of a good letter. So after this attack, they returned to a place called Fort Kiowa, which is near current day Chamberlain, South Dakota. Um, and then they set out overland to the Yellowstone River. So now we're getting in, getting close to Montana. So as they passed a location that is present day near a town called Lemon, South Dakota, here's where our story really starts. Hugh Glass was scouting for game for their expedition cash um, when he surprised and disturbed, you got it, a mother grizzly bear with two cubs. Ooh. So maybe where it starts to sound familiar. The bear charged him, picked him up, bit him, slashed him, lacerated his skin, mauled him essentially. And he had other members of the party close by that heard his screams and were able to kind of respond and see what was going on. It's ambiguous how the bear was killed, but the bear was killed. And some say that Hugh Glass killed the bear himself. By his bare hands, right, Julie? Possibly by his bare hands, but more likely with his beloved rifle that never left his side. So another trapper named Hiram Allen described the scene. The monster had torn the flesh from the lower part of the body and the flesh from the lower limbs. He also had his neck shockingly torn, even to the degree that an aperture appeared to have been made into the windpipe and his breath to exude at the side of his neck. Blood flowed freely, but fortunately no bone was broken and his hands and arms were not disabled. So that was one account of his injuries. Most other accounts do say that his leg was broken. I think that is probably actually true. So he was in bad shape and the trappers stayed with him, convinced that he was gonna die. They didn't think he had any chance of survival with all these injuries and I wouldn't either if his windpipe is exposed and he's kind of breathing through the side of his neck. That sounds pretty incompatible with life. So they stayed with him for a couple days and carried him. They improvised a litter out of tree branches and kind of carried him with the team for about two days. But finally realized, you know, this is only going to end in one way. So they offered money. The team leader offered money to a couple volunteers that would be willing to stay behind with him until he died and then bury him in a grave it's unclear how much money they were offered, but somewhere between 80 and $400, which makes me think that $200 a year is not a lot of money. Either that or they really wanted to get rid of Hugh Glass. Maybe he was really a horrible person. They couldn't stand him. And they were like, we will pay you $400 to get rid of this person. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> you'll see. They really wanted, they just wanted to give him, you know, a uh, honorable death. They just wanted to keep him comfortable until he died. In fact, nobody was scheming to end his life. They just thought it was an inevitability. Right. No, I was just going to say, you know, if you're making only $200 a year working this job and then someone's like, oh, I'll double it if you just stay here. 
Do you know what I mean? It's either they right. really love him or they can't stand him, one or the other. That's quite a bit of yeah. money. Right. Yeah, and the range was 80 to 400. My guess it was closer to 80 bucks to stay there. But yeah. you, why do you even have to pay somebody? Just stay with the guy, you know? <laughs> right. And where do these numbers time. really truly come from anyway? Right, exactly. You know? Could have been 80 cents. Yeah. So anyway, I'm going to introduce us to a couple of new characters in the story. John Fitzgerald and again, Jim Bridger were the two that volunteered to stay with him. So they stayed with him. They kept him company. But after five days of having been separated from the rest of the group, he was still alive. And neither of the two um, had expected him to live this long. So I think they kind of weren't sure what to do at this point. And here's where things get a little dark. So they did not kill him, but they put him close to a stream, a water source, under a berry patch, a food source. And then they took all of his things, including his rifle and his gear, and they left him. They left him for dead with no doubt in their mind that given enough time, he would die. Wow. Which actually, truly, at that time, can you imagine... So you teach outdoor wilderness medicine. Can you imagine what his wounds were like and what did they do for wound management? They probably didn't do anything. Yeah. You know, I don't it's like startling with that degree of injuries that you wouldn't get infection and you would just, you know, within 72 hours be dead. Well, Casey, you're about to find out what old Hugh did himself for wound management and you're going to like it. So they took his things, his rifle, his knife, his gear. And, you know, part of the rationale it's speculated is that if they took his things back to the rest of the group it would probably be good proof that he actually died um, and they'd be able to collect their payment they'd be able to get their money if they didn't show back up with his things then there might be a question of whether or not he died and they just didn't want any complications in their payment and back at that in those days during that era it probably would have been considered a bigger crime to take a man's tools than to leave him to die on his own so that was the that was their mistake in the story so despite these injuries Hugh Glass regained consciousness he's on his own now he was without weapons he was without equipment he was injured with festering infected wounds at this point the broken leg that i already mentioned lacerations on his torso exposed ribs just a multitude of in injuries that each one of them on their own could be fatal so he set the bone of his own leg he wrapped himself in a bear hide that his companions had placed over him before they left him. It's unclear if it was the bear that they killed. And when he got his strength, he started crawling. He started crawling in the direction back to where he came from at Fort Kiowa, 200 miles away. What? This is what we call a rude awakening. Maybe that's where that term came from. Is Hugh Glass waking up to his body being completely disheveled and torn apart? Because he may not have had even any memory of that incident. Yeah. Certainly, if he'd had this period of unconsciousness, he might not even know how he got there. But he did know that he was getting gangrene on his wounds. So he allowed maggots to start eating the flesh, which 
we know is actually a really excellent way to debride an infected wound, as gross as it sounds. Where did he get these maggots? He just dug them up. Yeah, maybe he he may have. <laughs> there's also a tale that talks about how he ate a calf that had been taken down and half eaten by wolves before him. So he might have found the maggots on the oh. calf that he was eating. That's one guess. That's me speculating. That's probably not the best, most clean food source that you could find. <laughs> yeah, no, there was some other questionable food sources that are mentioned in his story including it's said that he he survived mostly on wild berries and roots but one version of the story talks about how he would lay next to a stream for days at a time um, and at one point he killed a large rattlesnake with a, a sharp stone and he just kind of laid there to build his strength slowly nibbling away at the rattlesnake for sustenance there's also a story that at one point he lost consciousness and awoke to find a grizzly bear licking his wounds clean. Oh, I'm sure that's what happened. <laughs> that one most certainly is not true, but I did see reference to the maggots in more than one account. So that, that one might be true. So he had 200 miles to go and he had been this way. So he kind of knew some landmarks to get him back from where he had come from. He crawled and crawled. It took him six weeks and he eventually w limped. So he was kind of regaining his strength through this entire time. So he crawled and then he limped back to um, this Fort Kiowa. And interestingly, there's a song by the band of Monsters and Men called Six Weeks that is about this six week crawling journey of Hugh Glass. Oh, I'm gonna have to listen to that now. Yeah, it's a I, it's a great song. I didn't recognize it. I do know some of their music, but it was it's a really great song. Maybe we can link it in the show notes. So the story goes: once he got back to Fort Kiowa, he was pretty well healed at this point. It had been over six weeks, and his mission now was to find Jim Bridger and John Fitzgerald. And most of the accounts of the story, including the movie. The Revenant, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Hugh Glass, paints the picture that he's out to get Bridger and Fitzgerald to seek revenge, to kind of get justice for ha having left him for dead. But most accounts suggest that the reality of it was he just wanted his gun back. He wanted that rifle back. <laughs> he was like, I don't care that you left me for dead. I don't care what you're doing. I just want my gun back. I mean, come on, people. Just want my gun back. So he, his goal in life now is to track these two down. And it was pretty easy, actually, to find Jim Bridger. He found him at a, a camp near the Bighorn River in Montana. And he forgave him. Jim Bridger was only 19 years old at the time. So wow. he kind of made amends. Bridger didn't have his rifle. So they parted ways, and he went on to track down Fitzgerald. So time went by. This didn't all happen immediately. He had many other adventures between these chapters, but eventually he did find Fitzgerald. He had joined the army and was stationed now in Nebraska. And he asked for his gun back. And I think he did get his gun back. And he did not seek any other revenge towards Fitzgerald. But some say it's because he was an army officer at that point, And there would have been too much retribution had he killed him. So he traveled from Montana to Nebraska for a rifle? 
Is that oh, what yeah. you're telling yes. me? Yes. <laughs> that is what I'm telling you. That's why I'm saying that was the, his, that's, that's what the drives love. him in this world. That's the love of his life. I mean, that is he was absurd. Also- how many, sorry, I was just going to say, like, how many miles do you think that is? That's a long distance, I would imagine. Montana oh, yeah. to Nebraska. Anyway, it doesn't yeah, matter. It's a long, it's a long way to go. It is. And it took him, you know, like I said, it wasn't like he went straight there. He did. He had many other adventures and illustrious encounters between the time he found Bridger <laughs> and Fitzgerald. But eventually he did catch up with them. And eventually he was given $300 in compensation for his injuries, presumably from the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, little workers comp. Oh, did he have any life altering injuries? Did he have anything that, you know, did he have chronic leg pain or any other problems relating to his bear encounter? Well, his voice was never the same. He couldn't speak um, as effectively or in the same voice as before the mauling. Uh, But that's the only long-term thing that I read about. I'm sure he had others. But, you know, he's a mountain man. He probably didn't mention it. (laughs) He probably didn't It wasn't important. Yeah. And it is said that throughout the later years of his life, he really you know, like to kind of retell the story and add a little bit here and add a little (laughs) bit there. So that's, I think where some of this, some of these embellishments come from. Well, it's really sad that he didn't take his heresy and write an account of these events. Right. Yeah. I couldn't find anything from first person on this, but there is a lot, there's a lot of retelling in movies and TV shows and books and um, different versions of this story. And music, I mentioned. In The Revenant, didn't he go back to find the bear and kill it? I don't know. I'll have to watch it again. Yeah, you'll have to watch it again. I've seen it, but it's been years. And I think in the movie, he was going back to kill Bridger and Fitzgerald. Oh, okay. And that's the part that's like, well, maybe he wasn't really trying to kill him. Maybe he was just wanted his gun back. But I could be wrong about all of that. Um, so anyway, Life kind of slowed down for him. Fur trapping became less of a thing. Um, He was getting a little bit older. And in the spring of 1833, so this would be like 10 years after these events, he left his uh, camp that he was at at that time with two other hunters to go hunt bear, actually. They were going to try and kill a bear to eat. Um, And they hadn't gotten too far when they were attacked uh, along the Yellowstone River by 30 Arakara warriors on horseback, and he was killed. Wow. He was killed, they took his clothes, they took his gear, and they scalped him. And that is how he met his end. That would be a terrifying end. (laughs) Terrifying end to a terrifying life. (laughs) There's a, interestingly, there is a mon, here's a road trip, Casey, for us. There is a monument near the site of his bear mauling Um, In South Dakota, our next door neighbors. Yeah, that sounds like it would be fun. Like a little history trip we could go on. You can stop at that area where that fire happened, where there's- Yeah, the Man Gulch. The Man Gulch, yeah. So there's a couple things that I think come from maybe the movie, The Revenant, that just are not true. One, you might remember this, in the movie, he cut open a dead horse and like climbed in the carcass to try and seek that. Apparently that never really happened. But the story is kind of stands on its own. I think you can retell it without having to throw in other details like that. 
Right. Yes. I thought that movie had beautiful footage, but it was a little bit slow moving for my taste. Mm. So I might just have to look at the synopsis. Yeah. And not watch the whole thing over again. I think most of it is about his crawling, his 200 mile crawling journey. So that would feel slow. It might feel slow. (laughs) It might feel slow. It took six weeks. (laughs) It probably was very slow. Oh man. Anyway, that is Hugh Glass. Tough guy, real survivor. Well, I'm glad you told that story because I've thought about that story before. And then I just, it looked like a big rabbit hole that I was going to never be able to crawl out of once I started researching it. So thanks for doing that for me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of <laughs> distractions on that one. I finally gave up on sorting fact from fiction and just thought I'd share it all. Embrace it all. It's fine. Yeah, it is. Well, thank you for sharing, Julie. Thanks for listening. Okay. We'd like to thank you for your support and spreading the word about the Crux True Survival Stories. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to visit our Instagram page at the Crux Podcast and share our latest posts on your stories. Help us reach more fellow survival enthusiasts and storytellers. Consider leaving a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback means a lot to us and helps us continue bringing you these compelling stories of survival. If you have a story that you'd like to share with us or topics you'd like us to explore, feel free to write us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for your support. Yeah, you guys, thanks so much for your support and we will be bringing another story to you next week.